Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to talk to everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Today, joining me is Michelle Flores Vrin to talk about innovation and nonprofits. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm so delighted to be here in conversation about one of my favorite topics, innovation. So for people who are hearing you for the first time, can you explain a bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So my background is in nonprofits, and I started out in communications, actually, and did about five years in communications at nonprofits and then switched to fundraising. So my, I guess, main identity is as a nonprofit fundraiser. I've been a frontline fundraiser for nonprofits for over 10 years now. And how did you get started working with nonprofits? Yeah, so my background is actually kind of originally started out for me in academia. I was in a PhD program in cultural anthropology and always kind of assumed in graduate school I was going to go down the traditional academic road of getting my PhD, you know, teaching at the college level. And when I had enough credits in my program to earn a master's, I really had to take a pause and reflect a moment of, do I want to continue and get my PhD or like, do I just want to get my master's? And at the time, what I was studying was environmental conservation through an anthropological lens. And we were really focusing on when you implement large scale conservation projects and culturally diverse areas, what makes them successful, like how do you work with the community successfully, what makes them unsuccessful, et cetera. So that was really, I guess, the problem I was focused on in my master's thesis. And so I was really steeped in the the environmental conservation world. And I realized at the time, just from doing environmental conservation research, that some of the biggest gains being made in conservation were actually through nonprofits. And I think, you know, we all have these amazing nonprofits in our towns. And for me, I realized this was in San Antonio, Texas, that there were amazing nonprofits like Green Spaces Alliance of South Texas. And of course, we have, you know, the Nature Conservancy in Texas, et cetera. And that nonprofits were really the players who were doing all of this great conservation impact and often with really small teams, you know, like a team of three to five people or something. And it just kind of blew my mind as a graduate student, like, wow, there's so much impact being done in the nonprofit world. And so I decided to not pursue my PhD, but to really pursue more of my communications background in nonprofits. And so communications led me to fundraising for nonprofits and Fundraising for nonprofits is a really interesting intersection because, you know, the the greatest missions are really able to deliver when they have enough funding. And so I really feel like fundraising for nonprofits or being a fundraiser allows me to really give like the fuel to the great ideas that nonprofits have. That's awesome. I don't know if there's a, a case to be made, but I find that nonprofits, by being focused on a particular mission, they're... I wouldn't say they have a tendency or they, their capacity or potential to be more successful because the motivation, I guess, is stronger. I'm not sure if there's if it's anecdotal or I've kind of heard this from you know various people, but I 
I kind of get a sense of that. And it sounds like you heard the same or you see the same thing too, that locally the biggest impact or large impacts uh, come from nonprofits. Yes. I do think because they are very, or tend to be very place-based, there's something very organic and embedded in the community that kind of gives them an edge on impact, if you will. And I also think that that's something that most people don't know that's happening in their own backyards, right? Like most people don't realize the huge impact that nonprofits are having on their community. And, you know, this is probably a podcast or a conversation for another podcast, but that's a whole education theme that needs to happen is that for people to understand what are the nonprofits in my community and really understanding how they make the community a real vibrant place to live. And I really believe that. Like, I think our towns and cities would just be towns and cities without nonprofits. Nonprofits are what make them actual like communal spaces that are fun. And um, there's connection across different diverse cultures. I think nonprofits are so important in making sure that those kinds of things happen. Yeah, I totally agree. But I also agree it's probably a conversation for another podcast. Yep. <laughs> Let's focus on innovation. So there's a lot to talk about. Let's start maybe with a definition of what would you consider to be innovation in the context of a nonprofit space? Yeah. So I definitely don't, I wouldn't cook up a definition that's separate for nonprofits. I kind of tend to think of innovation in the same way, no matter who it's for. And at a very high level, I think that's having a great idea, but maybe executing it in a novel way. But you know, there's got to be this new aspect to something in innovation. And one thing which I thought a lot about prep for this was, you know, I think that with innovation in both nonprofits and for-profits, we tend to think of innovation as being associated with like big things, right? Like disruption or like breakthrough change. Like that's how we begin to formulate our definition of innovation. But I also think innovation can happen in very small ways. And small doesn't have to be bad, which, you know, we can talk about that more later. But just to recap, so definition is having a great idea, but executed in a novel way. For me, like that's where I start with innovation. I would agree. And I would also add another definition could be, or to add to, the, add to that definition would be to take two things that are not connected and connect them in something in a new way. Two existing ideas, but the way you combine them or the, yeah, I guess the way you combine them makes it together, a combined, uh, unique and innovative. Yep. I love that. Cool. So this is going to be a really broad question and I'm not even sure how to separate it. So maybe we can take the answers one by one, but let's talk about some key ways that a nonprofit can innovate. Yeah. So I feel like innovation is not just having creative ideas or a novel approach to something. It's actually the execution of those ideas. And if we can move forward with that understanding and definition, I think that one thing nonprofits can do to actually become more innovative is to create a culture that supports that. So I really feel like you know, it's more about the people and team probably in a lot of ways than the ideas themselves. 
because we never have a lack of great ideas, but I think where we tend to stumble is the execution of those ideas. So for me, like the culture is everything. So fostering this culture of originality or a a culture that really values trying and testing new things, that's the key to starting, right? I think like your listeners will probably be asking, okay, that sounds great, but how do you actually do that? And for me, I think you just have to build in some rewards or norms around testing ideas. I always think of testing ideas as a way of figuring stuff out. You know, like we like testing is good. I often think about the awards we have in the nonprofit world. And again, I come from the fundraising world specifically. So I see a lot of fundraising related awards, like at ceremonies, et cetera. And it's always, those awards always center around, you know, who raised the most money, like what team raised the most money. And I think that that's something to be appreciated and lauded. But I also think about like, gosh, like we need more awards around innovation. Like who came up with a completely novel idea, like in their team? And it's almost like, I don't care if it worked or not, but who actually launched that idea and was able to pursue it like can we like have some kind of innovation awards around those kinds of things so creating a culture of ideas i like that especially because i've I've heard somewhere that ideas are cheap it's the execution to your point it's the most difficult that uh, 90 10 percent of the of doing something is the idea 90 percent is execution mm-hmm. so creating that culture is saying where it's saying you know it's okay to innovate let's just try it let's reward it i think it's a great idea what would be some rewards that you would consider, for example, to, to encourage people and to encourage nonprofits to innovate? Yeah, like I always think about this isn't necessarily like an award specifically, but I always think about like for a nonprofit, like at the leadership level, like we should pride ourselves in taking or not necessarily taking, but executing on ideas from staff, right? Like we should say, Minimum five times a year, we're going to, you know, take ideas from staff and actually like test them out. Like we should be on the senior team level thinking that way. Like we should be holding ourselves accountable to testing. And I think maybe it's as simple as implementing a quota like that. You know, like maybe you start with three ideas a year are going to be submitted from staff and we're going to say, okay, we're going to test these ideas out. Like, I think it starts with small little things like that to induce behavior change. But to me, when I hear quota, I usually think of the the stick, not the carrot. Uh, I imagine that we, that's not a probably the right motivation for this kind of idea gathering. Is there specific ways you think that we could reward people in a positive way for coming up with certain quotas? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Definitely the word quota has a stigma attached with it. Um, I think that maybe you know, for the senior team level, just kind of making a norm around, we want to implement processes that allow staff to share their ideas, to make sure that they're being shared. And maybe it's around a certain problem, right? Like maybe it's some kind of shared problem that's given throughout the staff. And then we're asking and submitting ideas to solve those problems and that we are kind of holding ourselves accountable, like as the senior team to say that we're going to move forward on some of these ideas. 
something like that, I think would be great just to kind of kick off a more of a culture of originality, culture of innovation. But ideally, you know, I think that these kinds of innovative ideas should bubble up from the different team levels, right? Like you should, in your own team, have space on your team agendas to talk about new ideas. Because I think if we never make space for that kind of original content, it doesn't like just happen. We have to be very intentional about asking what can we be doing better and who has ideas to contribute there. And along this same line, I love this idea that I I heard this phrase once and I've always carried it along with me since I heard it. And the phrase is idea meritocracy, which really translates into we don't care like where the idea comes from, but the best idea should win. So we don't care if the best idea to solve this problem comes from another team. We don't care if it comes from, you know, the person who just got hired two days ago. doesn't matter. Idea meritocracy really says the best idea in any situation should be the one that wins, should be the one that's tested, pursued. And, you know, I really hope that from a cultural formation standpoint that we can begin to imbue that kind of thinking on the team's level to where you wouldn't have to have organization-wide quotas slash awards, you know, but those kinds of things I think would help as well. So maybe the best approach would be having tactics that apply from the top down and the bottom up at the same time. Yeah, I love the idea of um, the merits of the uh, the idea, not the source. I was also wondering, because I was, it popped into my head, this idea of gamification, of having some kind of maybe a leaderboard or badges for people that are consistently giving ideas to encourage a you know, friendly competition within a nonprofit. Have you ever seen that or any exposure to that? That's interesting. I haven't ever seen that, but Alex, I don't know. You may have just come up with a great idea yourself <laughs> for innovation. I love that because I do think that publicly recognizing originality or original thinking, like we definitely need to be doing more of that. And the badge idea is like, that's a great idea. I love that. Did I just innovate on the spot by combining two ideas that existed already? (laughs) (laughs) You did. You did. Exactly. (laughs) So I imagine that a lot of nonprofits, they have a a concern about failing, right? There's this overall, I think in society in general, we have this very negative connotation about failing. But I've, I've read that once you wrote that, you know, failing shouldn't be a worry. Like you should be okay to try and fail. And it's better to try and fail than not to try at all. Can you speak a bit more about, you know, how we can get nonprofits to worry a bit less about the failing process. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really important, especially as a fundraiser. So I'm like very involved in philanthropy and understand how important philanthropy is to a nonprofit. I think it's important to lay the groundwork before I answer in that. I do understand why risk is seen as very risky (laughs) because I, you know, And nonprofits, we're often, we feel as if we're not rewarded for trying new things. I think that there's also a huge fear around if we try something new, if we make a pivot, like what will our donors think, right? And so for a lot of us as well, we have 
um, government funding, whether at the state, local, or federal level, and the rigid structures around that funding often don't encourage out-of-the-box thinking or innovative thinking. So I do just want to acknowledge that. And I know that is a real thing. Like that's the world I live in like every day. So I very much acknowledge the reality that, you know, funder influence is a real thing. So with that being said, I'd also like to add on that truly like there is never going to be innovation without risk. And I think that one thing that we often don't see as nonprofits, that sometimes the riskiest thing you can actually do is not change. It was somewhere I read that, um, and I'm not sure if I said this on a previous podcast or my own action anymore, but um, that, that life requires a constant amount of nurturing and energy that if you don't give a certain portion back into the whatever it is you're talking about, it will naturally decline and decay. And this applies to life, it applies to technology. So you almost have to innovate. You almost have to move forward, just not to move backwards anymore. Would you mm-hmm. would you say that was more or less what you see? Yes. And I think I think we need to remind ourselves as nonprofit professionals that we are kind of like the best at doing this because of the work that we are steeped in we're naturally always asking the question, how can we make this better? I feel like that question is almost a huge part of our identity as individuals because we do want to make things better. For so many of us in the nonprofit world, that's why we're in this work. You know, like we want to see things improve and we want to be a part of implementing those solutions. So I feel like our hearts are there, like our hearts are so there, like they're so aligned with this, you know, nurturing and moving forward. I feel like the risk piece is where we need to do some work because, you know, it is hard to try new things, but at the same time, nothing's ever guaranteed, right? Like even staying with the same old strategy there's no guarantee that it's going to continue to work. Like that's just a belief that that may feel more comforting, but it's not actually true because as you just alluded to, Alex, the world is so fast changing and um, we have to keep up with that change. So doing the same thing we were doing in a world that no longer exists doesn't make any sense, but we just, I don't think are used to seeing it or interpreting it that way. And I feel like the the piece we're kind of missing here on like how do we become more how do we become more comfortable with risk is this piece of psychological safety and psychological safety is defined as being able to show up in your team space in your workspace as who you really are like as an individual but also being able to say what you really think like being able to pitch ideas when you really have them or question other people's ideas when you feel like they may not be foolproof you know like to really have that safety of being able to say what you really think right and contribute your own original thinking and this isn't anything new in the innovation space like we all know that from deep research at Google that they had done very in-depth team studies 
and were really interested in understanding what teams were the most successful and what characteristics were shared among those most successful teams. And through their research, you know, they found it was psychological safety. So somehow those teams had created environments to where people felt that they were able to contribute their original thinking, whether supportive of existing ideas or not supportive of existing ideas, somehow that culture allowed them to do that. And so when you had that in place, innovation occurred at the highest level. So I think that that's something we definitely need to talk about is, are we creating psychologically safe teams in the nonprofit world? Well, Google is famous for allowing its employees to spend 20% of its time working on projects outside of their current project, of discovering new ideas, of innovating new ideas. And a lot of great technology and apps have been discovered as a result of that process. So I'm not surprised to see that you know, Google is a leader in that kind of space. I would also add that risk is not necessarily all bad. I mean, you want to measure risk, you want to calculate it, you want to track for it and, and account for it, but it's also a healthy portion of, of growing. Even at a personal level, for example, I find people tend to stay in their comfort zone because it's very comforting, it's what they know, and it's, it's, it, it does take a certain amount of um, risk and an uncomfortableness, I'm not sure that's the right word, but of of acknowledgement to say, I need to get past this comfort zone to be able to grow as a person or to grow as a you know, nonprofit organization. And it's really in that outer space, that outer ring, that you learn so much more about yourself or the organization or your mission or new ideas. So you kind of have to be uncomfortable with being, or have to be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. A hundred percent. And I, and I think that there's also like this illusion, I was going to say delusion, maybe it's both delusion and illusion <laughs> that, you know, when we see our for-profit peers who, you know, seemingly are so successful, right? Like Google, Amazon, et cetera. We're only looking at or swayed by their successes. Like we're not seeing all of the risks they're taking and the failures that they're experiencing from that risk. We almost glorify their successes, but we're not really seeing the balanced view of they try a lot of things and they don't work. But because they keep going, they're known for those really huge you know, mountain moving products or ideas. And those are like what we kind of latch onto the nonprofit world, but they can't ever get there unless they're, you know, taking a lot of shots and missing some of those shots. And I think that's what I was really trying to get to with my post was I just want us to almost want to miss some shots (laughs) because, you know, the more you shoot, you're going to land some of them, but you can't just stand there and just not shoot the ball. There is a website that actually shows all the failed or discontinued products that Google ever had. And that list is really, really long. Uh, one of my favorite examples, too, is um, Airbnb. And, you know, of course, they're hugely successful today, but when they launched, no one actually noticed. They had to launch three times before they actually someone actually took notice and it started growing. So to me, failure is just a part of of success. Like you, you can't, I don't know too many stories of companies that are really successful. They didn't have a lot of failures that you just didn't see because you only learned about these companies when they were successful. And it's so right. easy to forget about those tried and, and failed type of scenarios, but it's important to acknowledge them because it is a key portion and, and part of being successful. Yeah. And I take a lot of 
inspiration from companies like Airbnb because I remember when Airbnb came out and I remember everyone saying like, I don't get it. Like this isn't going to work. So you're just going to, you're just not going to stay in a regular hotel. You're going to stay in someone's house that you don't know. And like, why would you do that? Like, you, you don't really know anything about the neighborhood. Like, I, I remember these kinds of questions. And also, I'm old enough to remember when Uber and Lyft came out that people said the exact same things, right? Like, you're just going to get into someone's car, a random stranger's car. You, you ignore your mom's advice completely. Ignore your mom's advice. Like, who's actually going to do this? And I'm maybe you remember this too, Alex, but I vividly remember having conversations with people who were just like, I don't get it. And I love companies like Uber and companies like Airbnb, you know, like these truly disruptive companies who, because ideas that people think that are crazy at first make me the most excited, you know? And I think that I started off this podcast by saying small ideas are very innovative too. And I stand by that statement, but I also feel like in, non, in the nonprofit world, we're trying to solve such like, mm, like huge Herculean social problems that we really need to come up with ideas that people do think are crazy because those are always the best ideas. Like if, if you have an idea that you think is really good, you tell someone and they don't think you're a little crazy. I think you need to dream bigger. Mm, That's a really good point. So creating communities or cultures of innovation and maybe, you know, and rewarding them in some way. Uh, hopefully there'll be ideas that come up and then ways and strategies to actually implement them. Uh, anything more we in that space before we move on to the next topic? I mean, I think I would just underscore highlight here, you know, we've thrown around psychological safety strategies to really see the innovation you have, but I want to just say that I think the people on our teams, I mean, they are like our biggest resource, right? Like our nonprofits are nothing without the people who are working in those organizations. And, you know, it's just a hunch of mine, but I truly believe that the people in this sector, they have the ideas, like they have that innovation in their minds. I know they do. Like, I know that there are so many ideas that right now, like as we're speaking, people have that will truly make a large dent in the problem we're trying to solve. I really hope that we can hear those ideas or allow them to surface and then carry them on because, you know, I've, I've worked in the sector for 15 years now. Like I know people who work in the nonprofit sector they are very entrepreneurial, even though they don't call themselves that. I call them that. I think some of the best entrepreneurs in the world are in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, you can call it a talent management strategy if you want from an HR perspective. But I just think we should all really remind ourselves that the best resources we have for carrying out our mission are our people and our people have the ideas. I know they do. I've heard them, you know, and I think like we've been saying here, Alex, circling the wagon on this, that the problem, the hurdle is hearing the ideas, seeing the idea and executing on it, not coming up with the ideas. And it's funny how most of the time, at least for me, at least, my most creative ideas come in moments where I'm not thinking about work or thinking about 
the, what I'm trying to achieve. It comes when I'm in the shower or I'm driving or I'm just about to fall asleep for some reason. So I think it's important to not only foster a culture where you can, as a group, come up with ideas, but even giving people time, just free time to be able to let their mind wander. I've seen so many organizations are so focused on the day-to-day activities that they lose track of just that fluid thought that happens when you're not uh, actively uh, thinking about the nonprofit. Oh my gosh, such a good point. And it goes back to your previous point of, you know, how Google allows a significant amount of time for outside work activity, right? So um, learning about other things that aren't, you know, your job description. And I think that that plays into that because you're right. You can't be so focused on the problem all the time or be doing five things at once all the time and really be able to do your best thinking and best implementation. You do have to have a balanced approach, you know, and I think that people in our sector, we're very heart aligned with our work. So we tend to give everything, all of ourselves to our work and to our job. But I do think that that can be a disservice to actually carrying out our mission to its highest uh, ability because we overwork ourselves, you know, and I think we're not allowing for time to really steep in creativity to think about things in new ways. And that's what we definitely need to be doing right now because the world is changing faster than it ever has been. And we need to allow our brains to, yes, acknowledge there's a lot of work to be done and we're never going to get it all done, but to take care of ourselves and to really give ourselves time to think. And I know like, and that kind of goes to, you know, I guess that very first statement I said about, you know, innovation doesn't have to be big and also be small. I've been thinking lately, maybe some of the most innovative things we can do as a sector is slowing down, like is maybe doing less, <laughs> factoring in 15 or 20% time to learn about other disciplines or to read things that aren't directly related to our job. Maybe that is the most innovative thing some of us can do. And I'm trying to do that myself as well. Technology was supposed to make our lives simpler, not add more complexity to it. And of course it adds complexity, but it also, instead of spending time or less time doing something, we actually spend more time and we just do more. So we get more done, but then the more technology improves and makes our lives more efficient, we just have, we do more instead of actually doing less with the same tools. I really would love to, to pivot to a scenario though. Imagine now we've got the idea, right? We've come up with this, this idea. It's small enough to execute it's crazy enough that, you know, people are saying, you know, really, should we do this? <laughs> do you have any uh, tips or tricks or what would be your advice to actually execute that idea? Are there certain strategies or patterns that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, I think that on the execution piece, like for any idea, whether it's a huge innovative idea or maybe it's something you've been routinely doing, I think that one of the best elements to your strategy is making sure you have the resources to actually pull it off, right? I mean. Oftentimes, nonprofits were bad about this, that we come up with, you know, we're going to kick off this capital campaign or something, for example, and it's going to take three years and ends up taking us six years because we knew from the beginning we didn't really have the resources to do it, but we just kind of move forward anyways. So I would say make sure you have the resources mapped out to the best of your ability to carry out the, the idea, but also really be intentional about 
measuring success in a way that you're successful just for testing something new, right? Like that's a good thing. And I don't know what that can look like in your team. Maybe it's celebrating small things like in your team meetings, but I think you have to be intentional about building in ways to celebrate your accomplishments of trying something new, regardless of the outcome. Yeah. How would you measure success of an innovation? Uh, that's something that I was trying to think of. I'm not even sure I know how to answer that question. Maybe you have some better insight than I do. I mean, one thing is, one thing I was thinking was really try to keep a tally and we don't have to be complex here, but really try to keep a tally of how many new things are we doing each year? Right. And it could be like maybe, for example, you never do giving day fundraisers. So like there's different giving days, you know, giving Tuesdays, one example, but there's all kinds of like place-based giving days. Right. So in Texas, we have like, um, big give SA, which is like San Antonio wide giving day. So really try to keep a tally of like new things you're doing. Maybe you tested, uh, out a new giving day and you've never participated in the giving day before. Maybe you're, um, testing sabbaticals. I don't know, like at your nonprofit and, but I think that you need to begin to be intentional about tracking new things you're doing. Because once you start tracking it, even if the count is very low, like, wow, we only did one new thing in 2022, at least you have that awareness because, you know, this is the whole business management, Peter Drucker's um, idea of like what you measure uh, really gets managed, right? Like if you kind of begin to set a metric or be intentional about measuring something, it elevates its importance. So I would really recommend that we just begin to really like codify, like literally just write down the new things you're doing each year. Because we may be surprised as well. Maybe we're doing way more testing than we thought that we were doing, or maybe we'd be surprised at how little we are staying the same from the previous year. But I think it's key too is to know is that anything can be measured. There's actually a book about that, how to measure even intangibles, something you don't think has a way to be measured. It usually can be measured. If you can think it, you can measure it. So I encourage people to read the book. I can add it to the show notes as well, because there's a certain sense that if I can't quite put a dollar number on it, it can't be measured, but that's totally not true. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. cool. Measuring things. Okay. Any other ideas for how to, how to know whether an innovation is successful or maybe the opposite? What are some milestones or some indicators to say, you know what, this was, might've been a good idea. It had some potential, but it's failing. So we should cut it off before we spend more money and more time, you know, invest more resources. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I think of that we've talked a lot about in the sector in the last couple of years is having more community based or community centric thinking. So in nonprofits, we're often serving people that, um, you know, the it's centered around our mission, right? So we're serving communities, like, for example, that maybe are experiencing homelessness or um, experiencing food hunger, et cetera. And so one thing I think a lot about when we consider innovation or implementing more innovation is that we have to be sure that when we're testing new strategies or coming up with new strategies, that we're 
not only considering the community we're serving, but also involving them in some of that creation process, right? And so that goes to a co-creation model of like, we need to not just be innovating for communities, but innovating with communities. So I think that one example of bad innovation would be regardless of what the result was in my mind, it would be a failure if we weren't including the community that we served in our strategy formation process. And, you know, this is going to vary depending on your mission, right? Like we all have different missions. This is going to look different to each nonprofit. But I do think that the more that we try to test new things, we have to really ask the question, how are we, who are we being held accountable to, right? For these new program ideas, say, and how are we involving the people we serve? Because, you know, this kind of goes to the idea of meritocracy thing, even if like, um, sometimes the best idea may be in our nonprofit, but oftentimes the best idea may not be held by nonprofit staff. It could be held by the community in which we're serving. So I would just say like that would be, to, in my mind, an example of like bad innovation if we're not really co-creating our program strategy with the community. That's a really good call out, not forgetting your mission and, and not forgetting your community. They're whole, probably the whole reason why you're doing what you're doing. So involving them instead of just doing it for them, I think it's a, it's a wonderful call out. Any moment when you, let's say, for example, a nonprofit doesn't have the, they don't feel they have at least the proper resources, or the proper talent to do it in-house. Do you think there's ever a moment, or maybe you already know what the criteria would be for a nonprofit to say, we need expert advice. We need to look outside what we have not necessarily just a community, of course, but someone who has either more experience, you mentioned capital campaigns, or some other some other specialist in an area that they don't have familiarity with to be able to help them get to their innovation or yeah, to their innovation or to their goals, I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that there's definitely space for external consultants to help in our ideation process, right? I, for us as nonprofits, before we actually reach out to consultants, I think we need to get clear on one thing, which is where are we on the strategy and the tactics for what we're trying to solve? So I think often like we conflate the two or don't distinguish between the two, but no matter what problem is you're trying to solve, it could be like a database related problem or a capital campaign problem. I think we need to get really clear on do we have a good strategy and we don't have the tactics to fulfill that strategy or are we lacking a strategy and we don't, you know, have any tactics because we don't have the strategy first. I feel like because we're not clear on what resources we had in house, sometimes our engagements with consultants cannot go as well as we may have planned. But I also think that oftentimes we kind of elevate in importance the strategy, right? Like the person who has the strategy should be the consultant. But I feel in my experience, the strategies often, we actually have ideas for good high-level strategy in-house, but sometimes we don't really know the best tactics to carry out the strategy, which is where consultants can come into play there. And, you know, that's not always the case, but I think that 
our natural MO or propensity is to lean on consultants for strategy. And consultants rarely have a completely new strategy that they're going to come to the table with that you haven't already talked about in-house. I mean, it does happen, but I think oftentimes, you know, the consultants will come in, share an idea that someone said internally, but because a consultant said it, you know, we feel more comforted moving forward with the idea. So internally, we need to really get clear before bringing in outside help. What resources do we have on the strategy side and what resources do we have on the tactic side? I think that'll help you identify what type of consultant would be better for your situation. Yeah, sometimes a consultant can help just bring a different voice to the conversation. And you're right, sometimes just because they're paid a lot of money, uh, they tend to be listened to more often than maybe an internal resource. Uh, but I've read, I, like, I love the idea, I think, looking inwards first and trying to foster the innovation and strategies inward first before going externally makes makes total sense. Yeah, because I would just say, Alex, like, and this is, you know, my own experience, maybe others have different ones, but I would say for my, speaking from my seat of experience, you would be shocked at how many great ideas internal staff have. Like, I have heard just amazing ideas from staff. And, and oftentimes, maybe staff that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like, maybe they're very young in their career and they're new to fundraising. Maybe they're six months into fundraising. And, I mean, I have heard people come up with ideas that have just blown me away. And I think, again, like, that's where that idea meritocracy comes in is we have to kind of begin to get away from the source of the idea and like just ask very plainly is this a good idea and I I think if we can begin to truly do that we'd be blown away by all of the great innovation we already have and I think that one thing that I personally think a a lot about as a woman of color a Mexican-American that I feel like I'm seeing a lot of people young people in particular, but not always, but people coming new to the nonprofit sector. So new to the space, they're really excited to make change. They're full of energy. They want to do great work. And then I think that there's not that opening for their ideas, you know? And so I think their ideas don't live on like in that nonprofit where they're employed. And that's something that, you know, where this, culture of originality, this culture of innovation really becomes important because it's not just about solving our problems or becoming innovative or seeing ourselves as entrepreneurs. I think it's making space for people who are very energized to do the work, to be a part of the change and making sure that they don't leave our sector disheartened because they don't see a space for them. I mean, that's presumably why they started working with you as a nonprofit organization is because they are motivated to help. They're, 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 they have the spirit, they have the drive. So unleash them, you know, allow them to come up with these crazy ideas, share them around, you know, vote on them as, as needed. But I think it's right. I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to do that you, you definitely don't want to squash in any kind of capacity at all. Mm-hmm. So let's say, for example, a nonprofit implements all these great ideas and they're on their way. Is there anything more you'd like to see improve in the years to come? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I would like to see is testing things become the norm, right? Like, 
I think a lot about this of like, how much are we testing things? And I want to see, you know, more people talk about that. Like you and I are both very active on LinkedIn and, you know, like in the, the nonprofit LinkedIn world is a, a true, like, you know, little microcosm world. And like, even that, like, I want to see people talk about all of it, right? Like their failures, things that weren't like just kind of unleash it all. Like I want that to be glamorized, just testing stuff. Like that's, I think the future I really hope for, for our sector. So that's like the, the first thing. I think the second thing in innovation that comes to mind for me is I really hope to see more nonprofits working together to carry out their missions. And I think that we're seeing moves towards this. I hope that it catches on and like moves more rapidly. But one idea that I have, and remember I was talking Alex about like crazy ideas. Like if, if you're, if people don't think your idea is crazy, it's not big enough. So my crazy idea is I really hope to normalize co-strategic planning. So let me tell you what that is. So we all know as individual nonprofits that we are doing strategic planning for our organization, typically three, two, three, five-year plan, right? So we're all doing this individually. But, you know, at least a year back, I really kind of realized how bad of a strategy that was because, you know, our missions don't exist in silos. Like they're very overlapping, right? Like if our missions were a Venn diagram, like you see so much shared space amongst our missions. Now we think of them independently because that's easier. That's easier. But in reality, in the way the world actually works, we have a lot of overlap in the work we're doing. And so I would love to see organizations while they're on their road to innovating and coming up with new ways to do social good come together and talk to each other and say, okay, well, this is what I'm planning for the next three years. And this is like what we feel like our specialty area is. It's good to know that you all have this other specialty area. So you can really, you know, put the majority of your resources in this area while we have this over here and together, right? Like we're basically coming together to plan more effectively to make sure we all know what each other's doing. So that's my big crazy idea, which I think that, you know, there's probably some kinks to be worked out in that idea, but not only will co-strategic planning allow you to focus in on what you specialize in and what you're really good at, but I think it'll allow us to leverage resources across organizations, which, you know, who in the nonprofit world doesn't need more resources? Like we all do, like that's the story. For all of us. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about is co-strategic planning. That's awesome. A lot of great information in there. Thank you so much. Michelle, where can people find more about you online? Yeah, so I am pretty active on LinkedIn and you can just connect with me there. I guarantee you I'm the only Michelle Flores friend on LinkedIn. So please feel free to reach out and happy to chat more about all things nonprofits. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.